0: The reading is taken from Nehemiah chapter 9 verses 1 to 37. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherabiah, Bani, and Chennai, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherabiah, Hadiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeas and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite and the Girgashite, and you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers." And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths, as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night, to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai, and spoke with them from heaven, and gave them right rules and true laws good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath, and commanded them commandments and statutes, and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously, and stiffened their neck, and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, "'This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt,' And had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day. Nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. And did not withhold your manner from their mouth. And gave them water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. And they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. And their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would and they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things cisterns already hewn vineyards, olive orchards and fruit trees in abundance so they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness nevertheless they were disobedient and rebelled against you And cast your law behind their back, and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. For many years you bore with them, And warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty and the awesome God. Who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. Upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress.
1: Well, keep your uh, Bibles open on that great prayer, Nehemiah chapter 9. Some of you may have found that confusing or may found it hard to follow. Hopefully as we look through it you'll have a clear understanding of what is being said there. Um, We're looking at the the book of Nehemiah in these morning services and it's a book that records for us events that happened around 400 years before the birth of Jesus. Um, And the land of Israel at this time had, well, 100 years prior to this been utterly destroyed and wiped out and the great city of Jerusalem had been wrecked by the invading Babylonian army and they took the residents of Jerusalem and took them back to Babylon, carted them off in exile. And in Nehemiah, we are reading of the return of the Jews back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. And under the leadership of Nehemiah, they have begun rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem that were previously destroyed by the Babylonians. But but as we've studied this book in these morning services, we've seen that what is happening here is more than just a renovation project. Because Jerusalem is not just any city. Jerusalem is God's chosen city. And it's tied in to all God's promises of salvation that he was going to give for the entire world and this guy, Nehemiah, he wants to go back. He wants to rebuild these walls because he is a guy who is concerned. He is a leader who is concerned about God's promises and God's glory and God's kingdom. And this period of rebuilding was uh, it's really quite a unique moment in Israel's history. It was a moment of real spiritual reformation and vitality in which they, they wanted to come back to God and in rebuilding these walls, these people are, are renewing their commitment to God. And we've been saying in these studies that, that we can therefore draw a parallel between the work that they did 400 years before Christ to the work that we do now as the church of Christ. Because it's the same God and it's the same hallmarks of authentic real faith in him. Now, chapters 1 to 7, that was um, uh, Nehemiah recording for us the rebuilding of the wall, and it was finished at the end of chapter 7. And chapters 8, 9, and 10, we see that the people now gather together um, to commit themselves to God. And what we see in these chapters is uh, what real spiritual faith looks like, what real spiritual reformation brings about. And we see that in three ways. In chapter 8, we saw it through a renewed Commitment to God's word. Then here in chapter 9 we see it through um, repentant prayer and then in chapter 10 what we'll see next week is active obedience to God's command. Listening to God's word praying to him in repentance and doing what he says that is the signs of authentic Christian faith that's the signs of real true spiritual reformation. Now we're going to be looking at chapter 9 the, the, the great prayer here um, the people have so far just been immersed in God's word. They've had the best Bible teaching ever. Uh, they've had great conference speakers like Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites that are all mentioned there with the the funky names that uh, be read incredibly well. Um, so it was very impressive. I think the key is just to read it confidently, even if you don't pronounce it right, but pronounce them really well. Some good name ideas if you're uh, expecting there. Um, And they've had these great teachers teaching them the Bible. But as they've studied God's Word, they have been so cut to the heart because they've seen in God's Word how they, as a people, have consistently let God down, and yet how consistently God has been kind to them. And so in chapter 9, this grief now comes really to the forefront of their minds. It manifests itself in this magnificent prayer. But we must see here what their grief is, what what it really is. This is not self-pity. This is godly grief Remember how last week when um, we saw when they're listening to God's word, that's when they start to feel this grief, and Ezra almost puts a postponement on it and says, no, let the joy of the Lord be your strength. But now is the time for grieving. And actually this kind of godly grief, this godly repentance, is what will fuel joy in the Lord. This is what Paul calls, calls in um, Paul speaks of, sorry, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. And I put that verse on your service sheets because I wanted to kind of hang over this text. It really sums it up well. He says there, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So this is the sorrow that we need in our church. This is the sorrow that leads to this kind of humble, repentant prayer, that leads to salvation, that leads to no regret. It's a key hallmark of authentic faith in Jesus. So let's look at it then together. Let's look firstly at verse 1 to 5, a repentant response to God's word. the end of chapter 8, they, they're celebrating the feast, festival of booths, they're feasting, they're having a great time. And now we get a really sharp contrast here in chapter 9, verse 1. The people are fasting, they are dressed in sackcloth, and they're wearing dirt on their heads. It's a, a common Old Testament practice to show repentance. It's kind of a visible picture of of helplessness, of sorrow, of poverty. And it sets the tone for for the prayer that follows. This is their response to the Bible. They've just been listening to the Bible. This is their response to it. Uh, The Word of God, when it is preached, will often do that. It will expose our hearts and our shortcomings and our failures. It shows us our true selves in, relations to, in relation to God. That's why it's so important that we study it so we don't delude ourselves as to how great we really are. I don't know if you've ever sat in a, a church service as a Christian and you've become maybe just really oblivious to sin that you are persisting in. Or maybe you're aware of it and you're just not taking it seriously. And then you hear God's word preached and you feel it pierce your heart and expose your soul and you realize that you're not as great as you thought you were. And the thing that hurts and the thing that causes the anguish here in Nehemiah chapter 9 is not the shame of being exposed, but it's the shame of mistreating God. You see, what we see in chapter 9 is not... Remorse, but it's repentance, and that's a very important distinction to make. This is not remorse. This is repentance. See, remorse is just another form of self-righteousness. Remorse is not about God, but it's about uh, it's about feeling shame because your sin has been exposed, and and you're embarrassed, and you feel bad about it. But it's all about you. But repentance is different. Repentance is having your sin exposed, but seeking to turn from it and bring it to God. That's how you become a Christian, by by coming to God and asking for forgiveness. And that's how you grow as a Christian, by continually coming to God and asking for forgiveness. Repentance takes it to God. And that's what the people do here. Verse 2, they confess their sin. And then verse 3, they go straight back to God's Word. They need God's Word here. They need to know what this God is like. The perspective of the eternal greatness of God is the only thing that can help them when they are confronted with the reality of their sin. And how do you get that perspective? Well, through prayer. So the Levites, they go down on the steps, they gather all the people together. There's about 42, just over 42,000 of them, less than the that were at Murrayfield yesterday. Very small. That's the nation. 42,000. The Levites gather them together and they say, verse 5, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. They need to think now. See how they begin? Think now. On the eternal greatness of God, Israel, and think about who, just think about who they are at this moment. They're a small gathering of people in a huge, barely habitable city. It looks weak. It looks frail. This, they're meant to be God's promise of salvation to the world. It doesn't look impressive. They're facing poverty. They're, they're intermingling with pagans. They're, they're indulging in sin. They have opposition from within and from without. And they know, they are acutely aware that the circumstance that they find themselves in, this helpless circumstance, is because of their sin and their rebellion against God. And so what they need to do now is to view their situation through the greatness of God's mercy. And just take it to Him now in prayer. And that is what humble repentance looks like. And that is what we must do. It's not just repentance that we seek for ourselves and our own personal sins, which we have to do every day. But it's repentance on behalf of the whole church. This is a corporate thing that's happening here. We must pray for Jesus' church, confessing its failings and desperately seeking its expansion. And you can tell, you can tell when an individual or when a church has a real vibrant living faith in Christ by how often they pray and repent together. If we lose that in Chalmers, what happens? We become totally self-reliant and completely self-righteous. And the evangelistic zeal the fight for holiness and our pursuit of godliness will dissipate as we become fat on the blessings of the comforts that we have in the church in this nation. And that's why we call people here to pray. We do it often. Robin did it a few weeks ago. We've just seen it there in the notices. We call people together to pray and we encourage people in the church to pray together, not as some form of guilt-tripping, not to try and exercise control, but because we care for the church. We care for, for you. What terrible leaders we would be in this church if we didn't call us all to constant repentant prayer. True godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to salvation, which leads to no regret, because repentant hearts, they don't dwell on themselves. They take it all to the greatness of God and submit it to His mercy. And that's what's happening really in this prayer in verses 6 to 31. This is a prayer that's just reminding Israel of the greatness of God's mercy. It's the second point. Verse 6 to 31, Levites are summing up Israel's history up until the time of the exile. This is probably, I think, one of the fullest retellings of Old Testament history given anywhere in the Bible. And almost... Really fascinating. Almost every line in here is an exact quotation from some part of the Old Testament in the Bible. So this is a prayer. It's not, it's not just Israel's history that the, the Levites are praying back. This is a prayer in which they're praying back the Bible. Remember, they've just spent days studying God's word together. And as they do that in these verses, as they look at the Old Testament, there are two big things that really stand out for the Levites in God's history with Israel. Firstly, God has been consistently gracious and faithful to his promise. And secondly, God's people have been consistently rebellious and disobedient to God's word. Now, I'm aware some of us might um, be here in church this morning who maybe are new to church or uh, maybe just you feel you don't really know the Bible that well, or you don't really know how the Old Testament fits together. So, on your service sheet, what I have done is I've kind of included a, a summary timeline of events that this prayer describes. Um, you can see it there. That took me hours to do on Microsoft Word. Uh, so, please do take that back with you or look at it. Um, there you go, that's my four year art degree right there. Shameful, isn't it? Um, but hopefully that will help kind of understand the Old Testament, what Nehemiah's is praying, uh, what the Levites are praying, sorry, here in Nehemiah chapter 9. Um, but let's look at how this prayer begins, because this is wonderful Bible teaching. It's just, um, they just sum up the theology of the Old Testament so well. They begin by focusing on the greatness of God and the promise that God made to Abraham. Now, that promise that was given thousands of years before Nehemiah defines the storyline of the Old Testament and the entire Bible. Verse 6, look at how they begin. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven and the heavens of heaven with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of earth, Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite and the Girgashite and you have kept your promise for you are righteous. So God promised Abraham that from him would come this great nation as numerous as the stars And they would be used as a blessing to the entire world. They would inherit this land. And God would use them to bless, to save the world. And the storyline of the Bible traces that promise. And as the people of Nehemiah's time studied their Bible together in these um, week-long conferences, they saw time and time again as they followed Israel's history that God is utterly determined to keep that promise. And do you notice how, how the prayer just begins by, by, well actually begins before the promise, it begins by meditating on the greatness of God. You are the Lord. That term Lord in capital letters in the Bible, it's not a title, it's a name. Whenever you see that in capital letters, it's the Hebrew name Yahweh, the personal, intimate name that God gave to Israel and the name that the Jews associated with God's covenant faithfulness. You are the only God. You are the creator God. You are the great and awesome God who preserves all creation and who is worshipped by all the hosts of heaven. And you, this great God, you are the one who made that promise to our ancestors, to Abraham. And you've kept it because you are good and you're righteous true repentant prayer. How do we do this? Well, it's got to begin, it's got to begin by placing our sinful selves under the lens of the greatness and the majesty of God. Not straight into, oh God, how we're so terrible, how bad we've been, because then it becomes all about us. Surprisingly little focus on the people here. The focus is on the greatness of God's mercy. We need to begin with how great God is. So how do you do that? How do you get that into your prayer life? How do you get God's greatness? Because we often feel so cold and flat to the gospel and unenthused by the greatness of God. How do you get that into your prayer life? The answer in Nehemiah chapter 9 is very simple. You read the Bible and you pray the truths of the Bible back to God. Practically, somebody, I remember, gave this advice once. I found it helpful. Practically, why not begin each day by reading something from the Bible and then spend time thinking about it and praying it back to God? And then pray at lunchtime of that day, just a couple minutes, what you learned from the Bible that morning back to God. And then before you go to bed, pray it again back to God. And keep the word of God fresh in your mind and the majesty of God always in your vision. Set a reminder on your phone to do it. We lament not knowing God and yet we don't pray. How can you expect to enjoy someone when you don't speak to him? And pray not just privately, but what they do here publicly with God's people. It's praying God's greatness that that fights off apathy, that awakens our affection for Christ, and that deepens our awe of His majesty. And I have felt that so many times on a Thursday night coming home from a prayer meeting. Verse 9. Fast forward now, 600 years later, after the promise given to Abraham, the famous story of the Exodus when God rescued the Hebrews out of slavery from Egypt. Verse 9, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire at night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So as as they think now, as they pray back the events of the Exodus, they remember not only the greatness of God in creation, And in keeping his promises, but the greatness of God in salvation. That the great eternal creator God, who is up in the heavens, worshipped by the heavens, is also the one who came down, spoke to his people on Mount Sinai, rescued them out of Egypt, gave them his laws because he cares for them. He provides for them. He guides them. He does not want his people to be lost in ambiguity as to what his will is. So he gives them his law, which is good and perfect just and true. And how did the people respond in the Exodus? Contrast, verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and they were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. They refused to obey and they did not remember you know, as the Levites pray this, they never view themselves as being distant from their their ancestors or the people that they read of in the Bible. They view themselves as being like them and so too must we. What's the problem? They turn their back on God's word. When God gives commandments, when Jesus tells us to fight off sin, they don't take it seriously. They don't have a reliant prayerful, dependent upon him? Or have we forgotten? That was the big thing in the Old Testament. God constantly doing stuff for his people and they just forget. Have we forgotten his salvation? Have we forgotten his great works that he has done through Jesus to save us? Have we forgotten the lengths that he went to to rescue us? Has the evangelical church in our land lost sight of the saving power and the saving greatness of God? We are so like them. But how does God respond to them? Verse 17, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. And then that's what you see throughout the rest of Israel's history. This pattern of rebellion, mercy, rebellion, mercy, rebellion, mercy, rebellion, mercy. Verse 18. Rebellion, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf, they said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, and they committed great blasphemies. Verse 19, mercy. You and your great mercy did not forsake them in the wilderness. What about when they finally came into the land that God promised? Verse 26, rebellion. Nevertheless, they were disobedient, rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets. Mercy, verse 27. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hands of their enemies. Verse 28. Rebellion. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies. Mercy, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your great mercies. And so on and so on and so on in Israel's history. Rebellion, mercy, rebellion, mercy, rebellion, mercy. Until eventually, in 586 BC, God says, that's enough. And the people, in his anger, are driven off to Babylon. Babylon. God is slow to anger. Thousands of years slow, but he still has anger. But even then, in verse 31 we see, even then he did not forsake them. You see, the dark backdrop of humanity's rebellion is there only to intensify the glorious light of God's mercy. That's what the Levites are doing as they pray through this history God made a promise to Abraham, and he will not abandon it. In fact, it's the, the storyline of the Old Testament is like this. This is, this is how God himself describes it. God is like a, a faithful husband, and Israel is like an adulterous wife. It's like a couple getting married, and the wife decides, on the wedding night, to go and to sleep around. And she does so continually and without regret. And even though the husband would have every right to leave her, he will not do it. See, sin, and the sin that they speak of here, and sin in general, is not about moral failure. It's about a relationship breakdown between us and God. And as they pray through Scripture, how clear that would have become. Look, they've not even confessed anything so far. They're just praying through the Bible, but how clear that would become. They've talked about the sins of their fathers for one reason, to show the greatness of the love and the mercy of the covenant-keeping God, because that is what these people need at this moment. This is godly sorrow. We pray the mercy of God and we must do it. And so if you're here and you are a Christian and you're aware of your sin and you feel beat down by it, you need to realize something, that you're far worse than you actually think you are. You are far worse than you realize, but you're also far more loved than you could ever possibly imagine. And don't tell Jesus that he doesn't have good news for you. Not when you see what he is like, that's the worldly sorrow that leads to death. But, but pray the truths of the Bible so that the greatness of God's mercy will dispel self-pity and pride. But it's not just individually. This is a corporate prayer. We need to pray on behalf of the church of Jesus. How have we let God down? And I'm not talking about people who call themselves churches but they don't preach the Bible. I'm talking about real churches here. We need to repent. And I wonder if one of the the big things that stops us coming on our knees in repentant prayer is probably the big thing that we need to repent of today. And that is we have too narrow a view of the mercy and the greatness of God. So privileged in this country here in Scotland. So privileged the church has been with how God has blessed it in the past but I fear we may have misused Christianity to make it a safe, comfortable, and just moderately important worldview. The author David Wells says this about modern evangelicalism, and I think it's probably a bit of an overstatement, but there's definitely some truth in this. He says, our problem is that God rests too inconsequentially upon his church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And his Christ is too common. How do we stop that becoming our mentality? Attentive listening to God's word and repentant prayer to God. Maybe that's not the case for you as an individual. need to think about the big the whole church, though, here. And we should repent on behalf of the church because we care about the church, because God's glory, the glory of Jesus, his son, is seen in the church of Christ. And so we weep when churches fall and fail, and we rejoice when churches are planted. But we also need the final point here in Nehemiah, in verses 32 to 37, because I think this is where we differ majorly from those in the time of Nehemiah. Verse 32. After praying the history now, they come and they offer their repentant request. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous. So in all the judgment and the anger that was poured out in them and all this happened to them at the hands of the Babylonians, God did it, and they don't think God's been unjust. See, repentant people rarely will question God's justice because they see the bigger problem as being their sin. They don't question it. And they realize that he has done it, for you have dealt faithfully because we have acted wickedly. And so they ask, essentially, God, don't let this be of small account, what's happened to us. God, just be consistent. Do what you've always done when your people have rebelled. And be consistent to your promise. And there's something in this prayer that's desperately sad, that longs for something more. In verse 36, Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. In other words, this is not the promise to Abraham. They're back in the land, but the promise isn't being fulfilled. We're slaves. We're we're subject to other rulers. This is not the promise of fruitfulness, of blessing to the entire world. There's got to be something more. Do you know that in chapter 10, what they do is they renew their commitment to God. They renew their covenant to God. And I just wonder, after they've prayed this, what, what do they think was going to happen? Do they really think that now's the turning point? I mean, they have just prayed thousands of years of Israel's failure, of rebellion, mercy, rebellion, mercy, rebellion, mercy. And actually, in that time, there was times of renewal. Moses in Exodus 34, or rule under King David in the beginning of Solomon's reign, or under Josiah, there was a great reformation. But failure, 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 time and time again. I don't think they thought, this is the turning point now. They're waiting for something. They want to know something. And there was something more. And we know it. You see, the tension that runs all throughout the Old Testament, you see it in that prayer, is how can God be faithful to his promise and love and save his people, but at the same time remain just and punish their sins? How can God destroy the sin of Israel without destroying Israel? And the answer comes 400 years after Nehemiah at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus solves the issue of rebellion and mercy because he is God's perfect son. He takes all our rebellion, and as Paul says in Romans 3, all the past sin that God had previously looked over, Jesus takes it upon himself, and he will suffer the judgment and the wrath and the anger of God so that we can be forgiven, so that Israel can be forgiven, so the world can be forgiven so the mercy of God would be available to all. Do you know, they long to know this in the Old Testament. They longed to know this. Peter says that the prophets were just trying desperately to work out how God was going to resolve this issue. In fact, he says the angels in heaven longed to know how God was going to resolve this issue. And we know it. We have more reason to pray than they did. So more is asked of us. Greater is our knowledge of what it costs for God to forgive us. Greater then is our assurance of the certainty, and absolute certainty of God's forgiveness. And greater therefore should be our constant desire for mercy and for forgiveness. You know, we could add another paragraph to the history that they rehearse. We could add another bit on to verse 31 because of where we're at in salvation history. Maybe something like this. And you, God, in the greatest act of mercy, finally sent your Son to save us. And we humiliated him, we insulted him, we crucified him, and we killed him. It was our sin that held him on the cross, and it was your love that gave him up for us so that once for all, sin would be gone, so that you would never forsake us, and so you would take us to the heavenly inheritance that you promised Abraham so long ago. I pray that we would know the depths of our sin so that we could see the greatness of his love shown to us in Christ Jesus. And when we get that, when people understand how great God's forgiveness is, they are the people that are the most sincere and worship of him, most passionate in evangelism for him, and most zealous in their devotion to him. Let's pray together. Father, we have much to confess. Father, we confess now the sin in our hearts, the sin that is weighing us down, the sin that is a, an affront to your kindness and your mercy shown to us. We confess what we have done wrong this week. And Father, we confess on behalf of our church the sins of apathy, of you no know, compassion for the lost, of bringing down your greatness. We confess it and we ask, O oh Lord, for you to keep giving us forgiveness and grace. And we ask it confidently because of Jesus. Father, help us to be broken by sin, to have a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, to bringing it to you, which we know brings salvation and means that we have no regret. Father, we long for the day. We are waiting as they were waiting for the promises to be fully fulfilled, and we long for the day of the new creation when we're at last in the heavenly Canaan, when we're at last home in the land with you, free from sin. So, Father, we pray that we would be ever mindful of your greatness and your mercy as we wait for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.